Are you a musician interested in improving your performance? Welcome to Notes on Jazz. I'm your host, Keith Davis. If you want to learn more about jazz improvisation, harmony, and composition, or just want to improve your piano skills, this is the place for you. We'll be hosting interviews with fellow musicians, offering tips and techniques on study and practice, and lots of other cool stuff. Whatever instrument you play, or if you're a vocalist, you will find something helpful and interesting here. So come hang out with us at Notes on Jazz. Welcome to Notes on Jazz. I'm Keith Davis. I'm here with uh, David Berkman. He's a great pianist, composer, uh, educator. Um, this is not the first time that uh, I've spoken on Zoom with David. I'm just looking back to see. I actually had a lesson with David, and it was October 16th, almost exactly two years ago. How about that? Wow. You're you're almost due for another one. I like to have students come once every two years, roughly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's about as much as I can retain, I think. Oh, that's a, you're, you're, you're a pro who is just a, yeah. more of a conversation than a lesson. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but it was it was uh, enlightening, though, for me. Oh, know? good. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I got a lot of information out of it. In fact, I would like to have another conversation about that and follow up on it some. So, sure, yeah. yeah. We were talking about something, topic from your book, actually. I have your book right here. I'm going to start plugging your stuff right away. Oh, wow. So, Excellent. Uh, the Jazz Harmony book by David. This is a great book for jazz, uh, learned for jazz students. I, I ask or require, not require, but I, I uh, strongly request that all my students get this book and we use it in our lessons. So um, I was actually, it, it was really um helpful to me because I was already thinking the same way as far as teaching. I was, you know, went back to starting with the, <clears throat> here from the very beginning, triad harmony and, and, uh, because nobody taught me, I didn't learn that from anybody growing up. You know, I didn't, even my jazz teachers, quote unquote, jazz teachers, they didn't teach me that stuff. So when I really started teaching people myself and realized that there were some real fundamental things that I didn't understand very well, I went back and started thinking through all this stuff for myself. Mm -hmm. Building up, you know, teaching myself from the ground up about how harmony works. And when huh. I found your book, it was just perfect timing because you're talking about all the same things and mm. you laid yeah. out very well. And it's it's a great book. I really recommend it for everyone. So, thank you. That's yeah, thank you. So, and also, um, I want to say just say a couple of things about you. Just an introduction. Sure. Uh, I said he's a wonderful pianist and composer. Uh, he's been in New York City for a long time. Uh, we're going to talk about your background and and. Uh, I'm asking some questions, and uh, um, you're, he's also an educator. Teaches at Queens College in New York, and mm -hmm. and uh, a, a very good educator. I know from personal experience. So uh, you've got several books out. We'll talk about some of that. Um, you have an extensive disc discography of uh, recordings under your own name, which is great. In fact, I went and uh, I downloaded your latest solo piano album last night. I've been listening to it this morning. It's very nice. Okay. Oh, thanks. Actually, to start there, I'm really curious. How did you decide on pairing Pete Seeger and John Coltrane? <laughs> yeah, that. So I had a few solo projects. I mean, I you know I I really love solo piano playing, and it's like a it's sort of an ongoing uh, you know project. And especially, I have to say, in these you know uh, pandemic times, yeah. you know that was really a great thing that piano players had. Um, which was, uh, you know, we could actually perform and we could continue to work on something that's really performance-based. So, you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing because you practice playing solo all the time because so, because practicing is solo. Right. But um, when you're thinking about it in terms of like an actual, you know, project or an actual something that you want to perform or, or a recording that you want to make, 
it's different. And I'm, I, I'm sure that, um, you know, I had a, on some, because of some of these recordings I've done, I've done a few solo tours, mostly in Japan, which is a kind of a second, um, home for me in a way. Uh, I, my wife is Japanese and we spend a lot of time there. Um, but when you do a tour, like for 10 days of like 10 solo concerts, it's really, it does something interesting for your solo playing because no, normally we don't have that kind of focused venue for performing solo music. So, um, Anyway, uh, uh, and also, um, just to finish the thought, we have, uh, you know, in a lot of, when I was coming up, a lot of gigs that I did that were solo gigs were essentially background music at, you know, hotels or something like that. It was like kind of a back, now, that's a great opportunity too, and you can do a lot with that, but because you're, that's somewhere in between sort of practicing and, and perform, you know, it's a, it's a performance that has like a certain kind of constraint on it because... You know, it's it's not people just sitting and listening to you. And, you know, that's it's an interesting thing. What influence having people listen to you does to your music? You know, I think uh, um, so anyway. OK, so um, I had these solo projects that I've been doing. I did my first record, I think, in my first solo record in 2012. And it was just a collection of standards, mostly, and a few original tunes. And, and I think some free pieces also thrown in. But anyway, um, this second one, I'd had this idea. I wanted to do the music of Coltrane because I thought, well, that's something solo piano players don't do that much in that kind of way, like to do all Coltrane tunes. And I ended up having about six tunes that I really wanted to play. And, you know, you go into the studio and some stuff come out better than others, right? Yeah. So um, I had a, about a half a record of Coltrane stuff that I wanted to do. And then I'd also been, when I started working on Counterpoint, in uh, more seriously in my solo playing, I was attracted to hymns and simple songs because that gives you lots of space to kind of fill in this sort of counterpoint harmony without, so, I mean, counterpoint without so much constant, you know, chord changes and harmony. Sometimes the chord changes actually help because it gives voices something to do. But in this case, I kind of was enjoying like playing really simple tunes that way. And uh, I have a lot of Pete Seeger in my, you know, sort of childhood and past, you know, like my, my father and, and my father played guitar and sang, and he was also an amateur jazz piano player. Um, so, uh, but I, when I was a kid, I played guitar also. And I, you know, I liked the, I, I, during the great boycott, I would, you know, go to, to, um, uh, uh, grocery stores with a friend of mine who played banjo. And so he had this little like social activist kind of thing. Um, Anyway, I sort of liked a lot of the values of folk music. And, of course, Pete Seeger was kind of a, you know, sort of heroic figure in some ways. Anyway, so um, I had this music of Pete Seeger, and I was on a gig with a drummer named Matt Wilson, who is a very funny person. And he said, I said, yeah, I have this, I want to do this, you know, Pete Seeger record, and I want to do this. Coltrane record. I said, man, you should do the, the music of Pete Seeger and John Coltrane. And I was like, oh, that's, that's an interesting combination. So... That's how it kind of, and so I, it really just sort of worked out felicitously. And then the thing that was interesting about it is when I was recording it, there's actually kind of a lot of similarities because it's both music of the 60s and it's, and, you know, Train has a lot of very, you know, hymn oriented qualities. And of course, he was also a real social activist, you know, so it's kind of like, there's kind of a, a, a through line with both of them. So I, I really enjoyed, you know, 
having that music talk to each other. And in the end of that record, I do a very sort of contemplative version of Giant Steps that lasts a really long time and goes really slow. And so it's like, I don't think I probably would have done that if I hadn't been doing the other simpler music. So it was sort of created an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I haven't quite, I just was just, Giant Steps was just loading up when I started. Oh. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to listen to um, that. After this after talk that we have. Cool. Well, I hope you like it. Anyway. So you mentioned the counterpoint. That's something else that I work on too in my soul. Mm-hmm. I play at a hotel actually a few nights a week. Right. I remember I remember that. And I and again I, I didn't mean to disparage that. No, no, not at all. I, no, no, not I'm, at all. It's great. I mean, you know, some nights I actually have people listening, you know, and some nights I have nobody listening. So um, but but this but I noticed what you said about counterpoint. I noticed a lot of that on your solo, this latest for solo recording. Mm. That's something else that I work on a lot too when I'm playing solo. I think it's really interesting. It makes the gives your left hand more. Uh, I don't know. It's sort of like when you turn your left hand loose and let it do stuff. It can right. Sure. Like yeah. That you didn't know it could do. You know. Definitely. Yeah. You know. I think so. Fred Hirsch has sort of been like a and a big. Uh, impetus for that kind of playing and and before and also um, Brad Meldau and like some other contemporary piano players who do a lot of that so I think uh yeah it's it's interesting and I like it I it's funny I play a lot um sometimes I play duos with my friend uh, Bruce Barth great piano player and his we'll we'll get we'll talk about that and his I know he one of the things he always thinks is well, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm sure he likes counterpoint. As you, you can't not like counterpoint. But his one point that he often makes with his students is that it's important to have like a storytelling thing. And the counterpoint sometimes can be can overwhelm the story of your solo. I think sometimes like what's the direction of the melodic? You know, so it's an interesting thing. It's like anything else. It's something you have to really balance. But I, yeah, it's like riding a bike or something. It's balance. Yeah, it's one of it's one of my. It's one thing I definitely work on and come back to and then stop. And then, you know, it's something that's definitely been happening over the last, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 years in my playing. Yeah, that's interesting. Because same thing, like I said, same thing for me. That's what I notice, you know, the most. Yeah, I think it was one of those things that was very much in the air in jazz music. You know, I think it was, you know, because of, you know, so many players who were going in that direction. And I think at a, sim- at a similar time. So Yeah, yeah. Right, right, great. So um, let me ask you about your background a little bit. I understand you're from. It's blurry. That's a filter, actually. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> your, your background is blurry. Yeah, yeah I can't remember. Uh, and, and you know, as I get older and older, your background does get blurrier. That's what happens. Anyway, sorry. No, no, funny. So you're from uh, Cleveland, I think. I am. Cleveland, Cleveland Ohio. Great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you? Was there much of a scene there when you were coming up? How did yeah, you start? I mean. Yeah, you know, was. I think Cleveland was one of those cities like the, like the, maybe Detroit was uh, a little more active, but still like Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh, there were all these kind of Rust Belt towns that had, uh, you know, a lot of great players from the, that came from them. For, from Cleveland, we had, uh, well, in the past, there, Tad Dameron was from Cleveland. And uh, actually, Tad Dameron's influence you would actually feel in Cleveland because there was a, there was a great arranger named Willie Smith who um, actually later arranged for Joe Lovano, who is also from Cleveland. Um, and uh, uh, it was kind of this Tad Dameron style, this sort of post or like this hard bop or whatever you want to call it, kind of bebop arranging style. And you would hear that actually in a lot of the um, in, in arrangements that arrangers were doing from there. And there was a scene of older players. You know, there was a great guitar player named Bill Durango who played with Izzy Gillespie and Ben Webster. And he... Wow. 
what had a sort of a he was like a kind of a teacher uh he 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 was a really interesting player he played on the on 52nd street with ben webster and his band and later he came to move back home to cleveland but a lot of the guys in new york still knew him so he would sit in sometimes like with miles davis when he came through town and he got really influenced by like sort of miles's like freer kind of thing so he had this this really unusual style that sort of spanned like it sounded he sounded sort of like a swing oriented guitar player in some ways but he also sounded kind of like free miles he had a you know thunderbird guitar and it was it was just like he was this sort of eccentric guy he recorded kind of an amazing musician and he recorded also with uh kenny warner and joe lovano in the 90s i think it was wow. a great record of that you get on there, write his name down. yeah bill diorango d-e-a-r-a-n-g-o Rango. Oh, yeah, he's just a, a really eccentric and interesting uh, musician. And there were, I think, in a lot of these towns, you, look, there are great musicians in every city in yeah, sure. the country. Um, and uh, I think sometimes you get more... What I think happens sometimes in small scenes is there's not enough for everybody to do you're not going to find like a you know Blakey oriented band or like a super modern ECM band or like with all enough players to play all the parts in them. So everybody kind of does everything, and that was a great experience for me coming up. You know, I was at the time when I was in Cleveland, I was really into Bud. That's what I was trying to play, like Bud Powell and that kind of style. And uh, you know, I would get called to go play a funk gig. You know, and it was like okay, Bud Powell and the funk gig. You know, it's sort of like um, you know, it, it was but. The other nice thing about it was... Uh, anyway, you were talking about Cleveland and some of the great players. Yeah, so there's like, you know, um, there were always a lot of interesting players, you know. Um, older play. I guess the, the other thing I started to say is I was coming up, I was like, you know, uh, you know, I'm from Cleveland, so I guess I started playing when I was in my teens, but then when I was in college, I would come back and play in the summers. And uh, after... I finished college. I I went back to Cleveland and I played around town there. And it was, uh, you know, it was Sonny Stitt came through town, and the yeah. three piano players who were competent, you know, <laughs> didn't were were all busy or out of town or something. And so I played with him for four nights when I was twenty years old. You know, it's like I, I was able to have those kind of experiences, which were so amazing. You know, and there were some great old players. Jamie had it as a, a fine uh, percussionist and drummer. And Greg Bandy is another one, a great uh, organ drummer, kind of a Harlem. He played a lot in Harlem with people like Mulgrew and, you know, uh, a lot of organ players. Um, and uh, I think he played more recently with uh, with Pharaoh before he passed. So, you know, it was like there were some really inspiring people to play with. And there were few enough players that a young player would get a chance. You know, so I think that was that was a very nice thing about that town. And also... You know, the values of this kind of, um, you know, hard bop and post bop kind of world, you know, so you'd play with. I mean, also, the other nice thing about it is there were sort of black clubs and there were white clubs, you know, and you played everywhere because, again, there were not so many piano players. And, you know, if you're playing in the black clubs, maybe it would be a little bit different groove focused or, you know, you might be playing some funk also or you might be playing a certain kind of approach to to standards and then when you're playing in these other clubs where we play with young young players you're playing things from recordings and all that yeah so it's kind of diverse and i think 
in that sense, like in New York, people have, I remember at one point when, after I'd moved to New York, somebody called me for a gig and that, or somebody said, I, Hey, I recommend a friend of mine called me at the point. I said, Hey, I recommend you for the for a gig. But the guy decided he wanted somebody who was a little more traditional. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, whatever. And then in, in the same day or something, someone else called and said, Hey, I, I recommended you for a gig, and, but they wanted somebody who played a little more modern. And I was like, Wow, what <laughs> am, I, am I just covering this much, you know, area between like 1962 and 1963? Like to say, you know, it's like, yeah. So it's kind of like in New York, you can, you, I think you people do tend to get typecast more, and you don't get called for those kind of gigs. And you know, to to some extent, that's fine, you know, because you find, your, I think you find your voice that way. You find really how you want to play, and you find the people who want to play with you. But I also think. Uh, you know, especially for a young player coming up, you know, that's really a great opportunity to, um, you know, kind of try a lot of different things. It was like that when I was coming up in Atlanta, it was like that. I mean, yeah. it was a big city, but, you know, the scene was relatively small and I yeah. did a lot of different gigs. Like you said, I played in black clubs, white clubs, and, you know, and some of my mentors were, I had some really good mentors that were great players too. So I was fortunate. You know? Yeah, I think, and that's kind of, Sorry. Yeah, that's kind of the way it was in Cleveland. I think it's often that way in smaller towns. You know, there's usually three or four kind of local heroes who get a lot of, you know, who get whatever attention there is to be got. Nobody gets famous in jazz. But, you know, those are the people who are really, you know, like the city knows those are the jazz names that they go to all the time. And you get to play with those guys and then with house bands and then, you know, just a variety of things. So that part was really valuable. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, my drummer in my trio, Justin, Justin Watt, he's from Cleveland. Oh, really? Yeah, he lives in oh. Nashville, but he's he's, um, he's a younger generation, younger than us. I don't know how old you are, but he's, he's about 20 years younger than me. 63. Yeah, I'm six, I'll be 62 in November, so yeah, we're about the same. Ah, uh, you're just a kid. I remember when I was 62. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you don't look a day over 62, by the way. Wow, thank you. I really, yeah, it's the blurriness. The blurriness <laughs> really helps with that. Yeah, the blurry so. background sets, sets yeah. the stage, yeah. I need a blurry foreground. That's the next plug. <laughs> so I think that could be arranged, actually. Yeah, if probably. You really, so. really yeah, just put a little Vaseline on the lens. So yeah, but so, that's yeah. So I, I, um, there's always you know, and there's been a steady bunch of people coming through. You know, nowadays these scenes are built sort of often more around the college in town. So in Cleveland, it's you know the uh, Oberlin has a great jazz. Uh, yeah. yeah, one of my mentors from Atlanta teaches there. Dan Wool teaches at Oberlin. Oh, really? You were just studied with Dan? Oh, that's yeah. He's amazing. I amazing. Him, I went to hear him play all. I mean, like, yeah. So, in fact, I got a I got a job working as a bar back in the bar where he was playing. Regularly. Oh wow! So I could hear him play every night. Yeah, he's a great pianist and and yeah. organ player. Yeah. Well, he's he's a, he's a monster player. His wife uh, Carol was from Cleveland. Carol Vito. Right. That's why he, they moved there. That that's, that's right. I think for her family. Yeah, he teaches at Oberlin, yeah. And they bring in a lot of great players who teach Billy Hartz at Oberlin. Anyway, so I think that generates sort of, you know, interest and a steady stream of younger players coming up who are going through that community. Yeah, really great. So, um, so I know you've, been, you've played with so many great players yourself. I mean, and you've got these record, your recordings. You've got some great players on your recordings, a lot of original music. Yes. So, uh, I mean, how did that happen? Was that a result of just moving to New York and getting to begin to play with all these people? Yeah, I mean, so when I first, so when I first made my first record, which is a record for Palmetto Records called uh, Handmade, um, I, 
Oh, good. Yeah. It was, I was at the time I was playing kind of half steadily with Tom Harrell and his group. And, um, uh, I was also playing a lot. Um, uh, I was subbing at the Vanguard, uh, for the, the big band. I, I sort of did it in between Kenny Werner and, uh, when Jim McNeely came back. So I was, I was the main sub there for, uh, uh, two years. And, uh, so that was every, every Monday night. And so I had these kind of relationships and when I was doing, putting that record together, I kind of took, um, Brian blade was somebody I played with a lot at that time. I was on some other people's records with him and, um, he just came to, um, my, uh, he came over to play a session once, you know, somebody just brought him over and he, um, he had not been living in New York that long at that time. And so when I did my record, I kind of took the, I called the people that I knew who were some of the strongest and, and some of the best known players that I, that I was working with. And that record was, um, Ugano Keguan bass, uh, um, Steve Wilson on on alto saxophone, Tom Harrell on trumpet, and Brian Blade on drums. So um, couldn't, couldn't you get some good players? You know? No, it was yeah, it was it was no, it was, it was an honor to have all those guys and to play with them. And then over the years, I did a, uh, I did a lot of records for, or I did like four or five records for Palmetto, or I did actually about six when, when all was said and done. But from that time period. At that time, you know, if you had a record deal, you kind of had a relationship with a company. It's such a, it's, it sounds like something really from the past, you know, but because um, it doesn't really happen that way very much anymore. Although, you know, a few people, if you have a Blue Note record record deal, I guess maybe you get more, uh, you get to do more Blue Note records. But at the time, I knew I was going to do a bunch of records for them because there was always another record. In a year or two, you would make an, another one, you know. So um, it was nice to have that help. And they would help you publicize it, of course. And so that was a, a really nice benefit of that era. And so I, over the next three or four years, I always had a quartet that I was playing with on gigs. And I would do, you know, a sextet, quintet and sextet on the recordings usually. So I did a, the next record was one called Communication Theory. And that was with um, Chris Cheek and Steve Wilson again and Nugana again and Brian Blade again and... Um, Sam Newsom was also on some of that, a great soprano player. And then, you know, over time, they were just people that I had relationships with. I played a lot with Dick Oates in the, in the um, 90s and into the 2000s. Um, and Nashit Waits is on one of them, a great drummer. So, yeah, it was just a lot of those people over time. Some of them, I had been on gigs with them in different contexts, you know, playing with them in a, someone else's band, or um, that's how I, we initially met, or... or Sometimes I, in the case of Tom, I was in his, I played, uh, I subbed in a lot of different bands of his over the years. So nice. I noticed you've got, uh, somebody from South Carolina on your, your last, uh, album here, Ken Salters. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot he's from South Carolina. About an hour and a half from where I live here in South Carolina. Oh, wonderful. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Ken is, Kenneth is great. He's doing a lot. He's, uh, I saw that he was just doing, he's on Rufus Reed's next record and, uh, He's a he's a great um, yeah great player yeah really a, yeah, yeah. definitely so, yeah absolutely so well I wanted to ask you about your go ahead go ahead no I just said he's, Kenneth lives fairly close to me I haven't seen him in a while but he lives yeah, I haven't talked to him for a long time tell him hello if you see him oh. you know, run into him yeah I will definitely contact him so maybe he'll do an interview with me too yeah why not yeah he can we reach out to lots of people doing this you know mm, yeah that's great 
actually, this is supposed to go live. I mean, not, not this interview, but the podcast is supposed to go live today, as a matter of fact. So, oh, wow. Good for you. Have you done a bunch of them? Uh, I've got, I've just got a few episodes lined up. This you're my second interview. Actually, I interviewed uh, oh, wow. you know, Ron, who's my drummer in my trio, but you're my second interview. I've been, you know, oh, you I asked you about this a long time ago and we, we right. I remember you, you did mention it. Yeah. So, yeah. Sure so, enough, it happens. Yeah. There you go, man. Yeah. So make it so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I want to ask you a couple more questions. I want to ask you about your, um, well, I want to ask you about your books. Like what led to you writing these books? I started writing a book myself several years about about jazz, and then I found your book. I'm like, well, he already did it, so I need to do it. <laughs> That's why the important thing to about writing books is try not to read any. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, because it's funny. A lot of times people will say, "Oh, I have your books. Uh, what other books do you recommend?" And to be dead honest with you. I don't really read a lot of jazz books, and I no. never. That's not how I learned, you know, myself. So yeah, I have a whole lot of other jazz books, and I never read them, but I use yours. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm glad I made, I'm glad I made the cut. Um, you know what happened was I was teaching. So I started teaching in in this program in Holland uh, in 2001, and it was a uh, it was kind of an unusual program where they bring people from New York into this place in Holland, is Groningen, uh, Netherlands. It's sort of a city in the north of Holland, and it's kind of a you know university town there. Anyway, um, at one point, the way that program worked, initially they only had eight teachers. And so you have 32 weeks. So that means you go for four weeks a year to Holland to teach. And it was cool. It was fun. You know, I was Holland. Cool. Holland is nice. You know, it's, a, it's Europe. It's really clean and organized and sort of seems to work. Yeah, uh, anyway. You uh, train and go somewhere. Yeah, you got to train all kinds of things that we don't really do in the U.S. so much. Anyway. Um, uh, have like a functioning government, things like that. Anyway, uh, no, no, let's not go there. Um, so uh, I was teaching there so much. And at one point they would have these special weeks where they just say, okay, now it's piano player week. So you're going to teach. And he would, and the person who would organize it, a great bass player named Yoris Tepe, he, he would uh, like just fill in your schedule. And so you get there for a week and it might be, Okay, you're teaching five two-hour master classes, and you're all, and you need to sort of go to yourself. Wow, what am I going to teach about? You know, and so you would kind of, you know, and you were there so often that you actually it would really push you to really figure out things to teach because you couldn't just do your your greatest hits every time. So, um, you know, I uh, I would shortly after that I started teaching in. I mean, I guess I didn't really have a full-time gig at Queens College until. Uh, 2009, but I was teaching there pretty a lot, uh, sort of half time from 2007. Anyway, I was teaching more and more, and I was sometimes doing just these master classes after master classes at this at this place. And so I, you know, with a different topic, it would be like practicing or repertoire or you know harmony or whatever, you know. So you'd have all you have to like, and sometimes they would go really well. Sometimes. You run out of things to say and you repeat yourself or whatever. But um, I was teaching so much and I was coming back on the plane from one of them. And I was like, you know what? I say a lot of some of the things I say, I say often, you know, and it's like I should write down some of these stories. And, you know, my the way I tend to teach is like kind of storytelling. I would tell stories about gigs and I would sort of mix it up. And so the first book I wrote was like that. I just tried to, I tried not to have it be linear because I think the problem with a lot of jazz books is they try and tackle one particular issue. And that's not really how practicing has ever been for me. It's not like, I mean, the book of how to practice counterpoint. Okay, well, maybe 
that would make sense. You could kind of do that. But the way I think more is like, you just need enough to get through like a really strong stretch at the piano for like an hour or two, you know, working on a topic. And so if you have like, you don't have to start at the beginning and go to the end. So the idea for that first book that I wrote, which was called the Jazz Musician's Guide to Creative Practicing, was I I had a little part in the beginning about, okay, here's the theory you need. I think I can condense it. And I got it. I think I can, I think I can get down to five pages and I couldn't, I got it down to like 14 pages, but basically it was this really sort of fast whirlwind tour through chord scales, tensions, and basic stuff like, you know, the things you need to know to like improvise over chords. And then, uh, then it was just like, okay, here's rhythm changes. What do we do on rhythm changes? You know, and it's like, it, I wasn't trying to be complete. I wasn't trying to like, you know, I, I also think that's a thing about jazz books that to me, that actually puts me off. If somebody's going to give me the whole history of rhythm changes, every, you yeah. know, like innovation, all the different forms, you know, like just, and then example after example of like Hank Mobley and blah, 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 and so-and-so and so-and-so. Look, a friend of mine wrote a book that's sort of like that, and I think it's great. But I think in those books, you really have to dip in and just take a taste and move on. You know, the problem with some of these books that are so complete is you start reading it, and in a minute, you're kind of just overwhelmed with it. There's so much material because the way we, the amount of information that you need to play is it's not always as much new information as just the process of doing it again and again and again, you know, and just feeling it's you don't need that much information. I mean, you said you condense it to 14 pages. I mean, if somebody knows that information, that, that that's plenty, man. I mean, that's all you really need to know. Yeah. And then you fill you fill in with your ears, you know, I mean, I have, especially uh, I teach uh, the harmony book that you held up, which was the third book I wrote. And it's probably the one that, has gotten um, people use the most and I, I, I get it. It's like a very, um, you know, it, that is a somewhat complete book because it's basically the course that I teach two semesters at Queens. So it's like the first half is functional harmony. Second half is non-functional, you know, it's just like, so, um, uh, uh, the, but um, with all the, anyway, so with my, like you said, it's not so much knowing everything in the world, it's knowing some things really, really, really well, you know? It's, so it's like, I think it's not that it has to be so broad, but it has to be really deep. So I think in some ways, those books that are so, you know, that take you through everything with motives or, or motive development or like the diminished scale or something like that, they kind of overwhelm because you're never going to do all those things. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. It's frustrating. I mean, you want to, I'd like to, I wish I could do yeah. things, you know? I mean, yeah, but that's, I think it's an unrealistic way of practicing. The idea of, I, I, what I, anyway, the goal in that first book I wrote was to try and say, okay, here are these tidbits, you know, just pick the ones you like and kind of run with those, you know, and it's like, you don't have to be complete, you don't have to read it in order, you can just go topic to topic as, in terms of what interests you. So that's kind of how I tried to write that first one. The second book I wrote was uh, for uh, singers because I was teaching singers a lot. And I think singers in the world of jazz education are really have a hard time because either we dump them in classes where they're doing the same thing as a sax player, only it's 10 times as hard as a vocalist, or we kind of uh, ignore them and tell them they should just be like thinking about the lyric of the song more and things like that. You know, so I was like, the that book was about how does a singer like 
develop good practice habits and use the piano as a practice tool and you know and if you want to learn to scat or if you want to sing harmony you know be able to sing through chord changes what are the processes that you would go through yeah so for singers it was just a way trying to figure out how to you know how to find a way for them to tackle some of these things and just actually for them to spend a couple hours a day practicing singing chords you know like if for most singers that would be a huge change in their practice life. Absolutely. So, um, as I'm sure you know, you've, I'm sure you've worked with singers that, you know, good singers. And, and, and the funny thing is sometimes working with a great singer, it doesn't really, it's not how much they practice. It's what they've, in some cases, it's what their intuitive thing is, is, you know, so, but I think we have vocalists studying in jazz schools and we have to come up with a, an approach that's really helpful for them. So that's been a nice thing because I, I do teach also um, uh, an improvisation for vocalist class at Queens. And so that's, you know, I've seen some students really improve and, and get so that they're hearing, you know, it's, it's an interesting process because, you know, getting them to sing, whatever altered tensions and you know scales and be proactive about making choices about the harmony they sing instead of just waiting to sort of kind of find something consonant with what the piano player is playing is a is a really interesting process and and i've seen singers go through it yeah i work with singers that are students you know, I'm basically, I'm trying to teach them how to accompany themselves mainly, you know. That's a great, yeah, that is, I mean, and that's traditionally where the really, that was a huge difference between vocalists that had that skill and didn't, like Sarah Vaughn and uh, Karen McRae and, you know, and then all the singer-piano players like, um, you know, uh, like, I mean, obviously, a lot of them were pianists who became singers like Nick yeah. and Cole and, um, you know, Diana Krall and people like that. Bob DeRoe come to mind, you know. Yeah, sure. And David Frischberger, who, I mean, I think of him more as a piano player, but, but yeah. And in contemporary ones, Dina DeRose is a great pianist. Who's that? I'm sorry. Dina DeRose. Have you heard her? Oh yeah. I haven't heard her, but I know, I know the name, but I haven't heard her. Yeah. She's amazing. I mean, you know, singing, playing lines and singing them. And it's really, it's pretty, uh, she's a great singer, but she, again, she started as a piano player, you know? So, but I think that's a powerful tool. If you started as a piano player and then you go and get, and then you start singing, then you have a lot of harmonic knowledge. You're hearing lines, you know, there's just so much going on. For sure. You know, I grew up in the church, Southern Baptist church. So I grew mm-hmm. up singing from day one, singing hymns and, you know, my yeah. mom and dad both sang harmony. My mom played the piano. My dad directed the music. And so I grew yeah, up wow. hearing all this harmony. They both sound, sang harmony parts. So, I mean, I was doing that before I even thought of playing the piano, you know, Wow, that's that, great. That helped me have some kind of sense of, of harmony. Definitely, yeah. And that's yeah. missing. You can't get that anymore. I mean, I mean, you can, but not not the way it was. You know. When I was mm. up, you know? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of players who come from the church to to this day. You know, and it's 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 an interesting influence on on uh, jazz. It's, it's funny because as the church player, as like sort of gospel music has developed and evolved you know, you can see the influences, like the drumming, for example, like drummers, you take somebody like, yeah, there's a great drummer, Rudy Royston, who yeah. plays a lot around yeah, New York. Yeah, he came down to Furman, where I teach. I'm an adjunct at Furman. He came down oh, okay. to Dave Pietro a couple years ago. Okay, yeah. So Rudy comes from, the, well, and so does Brian Blade. I mean, both of those guys come from church playing. and uh, But I can really hear it in sometimes in Rudy's approach, some of the gospel kind of chops things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, anything else you want to talk about? We'll talk. I'd like to hear more about. Well, we got 
your composition. Okay. I've got plenty of time. I'm not. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. However you. I'd like to know what you. Th- well, first of all, a lot of my this podcast is for students, like young, mm-hmm. hopefully young students, you know, that want to learn something about jazz. So mm. I'd like to ask you to speak to that a little bit. But sure. But I'd like to. Um, part of that, I'd like to know something about your process of composition. Like, what do you think about? When you're sure. Okay. So like starting with the composition thing. So I think when I teach composition, I mean, the thing that I always, so there's a, there's a, a an, um, uh, appendix to the, uh, there are two appendix appendices, I guess is how you say that word, um, in the jazz harmony book. Yeah. Yeah. One is about just how everybody can develop basic arranging piano, piano, skills at the piano because you need to use it as a keyboard instrument but the second one is just called tips for composers and it's it sort of talks about my process with composing which was i always wrote i always liked writing and so i always wrote a lot of i always wrote tunes coming up and it, this it goes back to some of those early palmetto records in a way because the first record i did i had a uh, um you know, I just took a, like, just, I called all the people I knew who are the, some of the best players in town. And I took the tunes that I had that I've been playing for the longest that I knew all worked, you know, kind of. So then that was fine for the first record and it went pretty well. And then the second record, you have to write a whole bunch of new music for. And granted, I mean, I had an hour, I had a, sorry, I had a year and a half to do it. And now it seems like you could write 10 records in a year and a half. But at the time I got really blocked. I got, you know, I sort of got in my head and I'm like, oh, I used up all the tunes that were the easy tunes. Now I'm going to have to use, write harder tunes or whatever. I have to write new tunes. And uh, so I kind of got uh, mentally blocked about it. And uh, I found it very hard to write music at that time. And so I, when I was doing that, I kind of started analyzing my process. And one thing I think about composing is, look, when we ask people to, to practice and we don't say, okay, wait until you're really inspired. And if you're inspired, sit down and practice. But essentially, that's a lot of people's process for composing. They kind of wait until they feel it or they have some idea or something. And, you know, there's a few... Um, uh, I'm, I, I would say that the, there's some many differences between me and Johann Sebastian Bach. I'm not... Uh, sure? I, I have no delusions of grandeur here. But one thing I would guess is that Bach didn't wait to be inspired. I'm sure he was inspired a lot. You know, he was he certainly had a great batting average, but he did a lot of things that were about writing every day. You know, so like he has like a, whatever, 407, whatever, however many they are, chorales, right? And he wrote the well-tempered clavier and, uh, you know, uh, prelude and, and fugue in every key. So you can see he has kind of this process that's really thoughtful. And, you know, obviously there's inspiration that happens there, but... I think the fact that he was writing every day is really a valuable sort of insight into his process. So my goal with writing was to go to get through this mental block. There were two sides to it. One side of it for me was um, uh, sort of realizing that, okay, so this comes from, you know, I used to want to be a fiction writer. So I spent some time in school trying to write fiction and um, I've, it didn't work out, sadly. But I read a lot of those. You did also? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It, it's, but I read some of those books about how to write. You know, like there's a book by Anne Lamott called Bird by Bird. There's like the letters from, you know, Vincent Van Gogh. There are all these, you know, there's sort of a literature of 
unlocking your creative self, you know, and some of it's like a little bit, um, you know, sort of self-helpy and some of it's, you know, it's all, it's all varied. Um, and the, some of those ideas, one idea that I got from that kind of literature was, you know, write anything, write what wants to come out. Like what ha- what's happening if you're not, if you're mentally blocked, like I was, um, is that you're sort of editing yourself before you like the, as when it's, when it's just the first idea is coming out. And what you have to do is you have to write tunes. You have to write bad tunes. You have to write tunes, you know, better to write. I've so, so many students, I'll say, uh, I'll mention, I'll say in the beginning, you know, a lot of times people have like the first three bars of a tune and they have like, you know, whatever, 20 or 30 of these like little fragments that they can't finish. And it's like, well, write, you know, like take one of them and write three different endings, you know, just like decide it's going to be a seven bar tune. You know, that's also possible. You can have short tunes, you know, that's, there's a lot of interesting short music that, that, that exists in the jazz literature. Um, so you have these approaches. So like finish it, like just have the thing come out, you know? So one thing that I noticed that that when I was, had this mental block was that I was, uh, I, the first record was more lyrical. The handmade had like more lyrical songs in it. And the things I was writing was more, were more kind of repetitive rhythms and they sounded more um, edgy in a certain kind of way. And I was sort of trying to avoid writing those things. And so I just would write whatever wanted to come out and try not to judge it. So part of it was just about letting myself write. And then the other thing that I, was really helpful to me at the time was I made a list of all the kinds of tunes I could write. So you could write a blues that it has that never goes to the four chord. You could write a blues that has eleven bars. You can write a blues. There's a great blues by Bill Stewart called Seven Point Five, which is seven point five bars. It's it's uh, you know seven bars of four and one two four bar. And the main thing to write that song was to have that idea. You know, it's actually you know it's it's a it's a good tune. It's like it has a, it's a, like a, it's a little riff, like it's a, like a blues riff. But the thing that makes it really such a strong composition and such a strong you know um, you know sort of vehicle for improvising is that it has this weirdo form with this one two four bar in it, and that's what the song sort of becomes about. So I think like giving so for me like just writing down this list of all the kind of tunes I could write. And there's two sides to this list. So one side is just a list of all the tunes you could write. You could write a modal tune. You could write a modal tune on, in the Phrygian mode. You could write a, you know, you could write a tune that's like, a, you know, kind of like a counterpoint exercise where the two lines follow each other, like chasing the bird or um, clock division scene is another tune, the bebop tune that does that. You could write a tune that's based on one chord, like uh, milestones. You could write a, a, the newer of the two milestones, the modal milestones. You could write a tune that's it's uh, all about you know two fives going in half steps or something. Whatever you could, you can have a tune that's all major chords. You could write a tune that's based on a on a uh, a tone row, like Bill Evans wrote T T T T, and the blowing for T T T T T and the four T's is uh, is all major chords. So you could have they're all major sevens. Yeah, right. Okay, gotcha. So. Yeah, so it's like you could do any of these things. Like you could just pick something and do it. And the the thing about picking a musical idea is once you have this kind of strategy or this kind of plan, then you just try and fulfill the plan. And it takes a lot of the pressure off the writing. I think in that sense, it becomes more like Bach, like sitting down to write a fugue every day. You know, like you have like a structure and you're not 
you don't like have that blank page like fear thing that happens when you don't know what you're going to do. Inspiration. You can't rely on inspiration. It comes yeah. and goes. Right. You have to have, and the thing is, your inspiration kicks in as you work on it. So, as like I said, exactly. Yeah. That's what I noticed. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. So, I was, so like I said, there's two sides to this thing. One side is like, imagine a thing you could write. And actually, there's a lot of examples for that. You can take a favorite tune of yours. Like, let's say you really like the song Nefertiti by um, Wayne Shorter. Well, I could analyze that. What is Nefertiti? It's like one long line that has a lot of fourths in it. And it sort of starts with this idea and then it fragments and repeats the fragment. Okay, I can do that. I mean, it's not going to sound like that I probably won't be as good as that necessarily but the point is i can write something that uses the same plan i could use a strategy wayne doesn't own that strategy nobody owns the strategy for the songs they write you usually you you count on yourself to intuitively come up with this kind of overarching plan for your for your piece but you could do it non-intuitively you could do it just like trying to you know pick a thing and, and work anyway so like i said there's two sides to this this list one side of the list is um is those kind of plans like is sorry is musically derived ideas things like write a contrafact based on you know secret love or something and and then the other side of the list is process so for process you could say okay I'm going to put all, I'm going to write down a bunch of chord names, put them in a hat and pull them out randomly. That would be a process idea, right? It's not so much the what you're writing, it's the how you're writing. Um, I'm going to try going back to the other room to see if it's, if it works. I think the problem was some hacking going on in the other room there. Hacking. Well, my wife is up. <laughs> She's doing various things. That's great. So, it's, a little, it's a little unfair to uh, take over the whole apartment. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is, I think this is going to be fun. Okay. So, well, let's keep going. Plus, you get all these different views of my blurry yeah, yeah. world. Okay. So, yeah. So, okay. So, that's it. Um, so, the process ideas are things like, um, not that these are all good ideas for students. Don't don't take drugs, but um, you know, like if you were going to say, okay, I'm going to stay up all night and then write the first thing that comes into my head, or I'm going to write away from the piano if I'm a pianist, or I'm going to start to make up the first line by singing it. So those are process ideas. Those are ideas where you take something, the how of what you do, and you experiment with it. And you know, again, that's also something that people don't do. It's kind of amazing how little we vary yeah. the actual process by which we write yeah. so even one of them I, I wrote one tune this way a long time ago write make four bar units like so you know you, you divide a line into four bars right and then you um write um a melody then write the bass notes then fill in the chords then write the next four bars even doing that which is not incredibly radical right but just not sitting down and writing the harmony and the and the um and the melody at the same time it's going to get a generated different result so i think all these things are things that you can do which will help you have more options when you're in a compositional mode and that's what i really encourage my students to do i'm teaching a class right now about um that's uh it's an ensemble where people write for it but there's to be honest with you they're so self-generating that i don't really they haven't really taken up too many of my ideas but that's that's also fine because they're working on it I mean, yeah i mean they're, they just bring in tunes every time and they don't seem to have any trouble writing lots and lots of yeah, music so that's, that's awesome. yeah 
again, you know, I'm not saying it's bad to write intuitively. Writing intuitively is great. It's just, you know, you, you want to write whether you have an intuitive idea or not. And that, I think that's the main thing for composing. But you also said, uh, you also asked me a question. You said um, uh, that this is a, a podcast that you're, you're aiming in part for younger players. In part, yeah, in partly, yeah, for younger players that are yeah, the only thing I would say for younger players is, um, I mean, specifically uh, about that, is there's a, I, I forget, I think it was Joey Barron. I saw a little video that he posted at one point, great drummer. And he said what he did was if he was really interested, because look, you have a tendency to hear to hear more music that's contemporary to you than music that's from the past. And especially now, there's so much past you know, so it's like, and nobody listens to music dutifully because they're supposed to. I mean, you, I guess we do that to some extent, but it doesn't really take. So for years, I when I was a kid, I didn't, I mean, when I was coming up, the first players I liked, I loved Oscar Peterson because he was bluesy and it swung and he had great chops and everything. Um, and then uh, I really liked Wes, kind of for similar reasons. So when I was 12, I liked Wes uh oscar and ben webster and those were the only and the I, I i had one or two records my dad had 112 oscar peterson records he was a huge oscar peterson fan but um there were two that i liked and those were the two i listened to and so that's kind of how i mean i got into jazz pretty early but you know as you develop you know what i wanted to say was at early on somebody told me that louis armstrong was important but i didn't like i didn't it wasn't my thing i didn't really pursue it you know it was i don't think i was in my i think when i was in my 20s i started to really appreciate louis armstrong or 30s you know it's like so now of course i love louis armstrong um and a lot of the players that i kind of skipped over sure. you know i have a huge appreciation for i i was not a huge hank jones fan yeah. But um, that's because I wanted to play like Herbie, you know, so I was kind of young uh, when I was younger, I was focused on a certain sound and things that were not part of that weren't things I really knew how to access. But over time, even from teaching this class, you know, from teaching harmony for the last God, how many years is it? It's almost uh, so like for 12 or 13 years and writing a harmony book, it gave me a lot more appreciation of Hank Jones, you know, because he's so harmonic. He's such a harmonic genius, you know. So anyway, I think. You know, what 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 Joey Barron said in the in the post that I saw was he said, start with whatever you like. Like if you like Coltrane, great. Yeah, like yeah. Coltrane. But then see if you can go one step back. If you listen to Coltrane from like his quartet and you love the energy and the feeling of that, then maybe you can check out Coltrane with Miles, yeah. you know, from the kind of blue period, you know, and you hear then you start to hear Coltrane with Red Garland and Coltrane with, you know, Wynton Kelly and Coltrane with Cedar Walton and then maybe dig back and see who Cedar Walton and Wynton Kelly are, you know? And it's like, I, I was teaching at this one school in Holland again, and we used to have to play a lot of music for the students and talk about it. And I was playing Smoking at the Half Note, West Montgomery with Wynton Kelly and Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb. And uh, the student, this one student was really 
rebellious and kind of ah, I hate this kind of this sound, just sounds like jazz vocabulary. I'm like, well, well, I don't know what that means exactly, but okay. I was like, well, what music do you like? And he said, I like Miles Davis from like the middle '60s. And I was like, this is my this is Miles Davis band from three three years earlier. Wow, so that is the cutoff for you. You just can't stand anything that is before Herbie and and you know Ron Carter and Tony Williams. That's you know that's awful. It's it's awful if it's like anyway so you know i think the 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 trick is to kind of keep going back because the thing about if you imitate um i don't know brad meldow or something um or i don't know somebody more contemporary than that robert glasper or james francis who's more contemporary than robert glasper you might know that little tip that little part you know something about what how James Francis sounds, but you honestly don't know anything that James Francis knows. Like he knows a lot about those guys, you know, at least for sure the people who come immediately before him. And presumably actually, you know, he probably knows something about our Tatum, you know, he's got a big technique, you know? So um, I don't know. Uh, I think in general, you want to try and trace things back as much as you're capable of and try, you know, to stay open to those ideas. Um, you know, the other thing is, I think it's really important. I mean, I don't, I never really, I, this idea just came to me, so I, 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 I'm, I'm, it's not something I say all the time. But I do think that you want to try to um, when you. So sometimes I've had students that find playing standards kind of boring, and I think it's because I mean it can be for a lot of reasons. I mean maybe those standards don't speak to their contemporary sense of music as much like obviously if i were a bell comes from you know this the the movie or the movie and and uh broadway show guys and dolls which is pretty old it's a long time ago at this point um but uh so but i think try and lodge like try and locate the boredom <laughs> in in how you're playing it and not in the material itself yeah, right sure I'd say that's my one real piece of advice. I, you know, because the thing is, if I go hear a jam session where a bunch of people are playing How High the Moon and they're just all reading their iReal apps, you know, on their phones, I think they're, I think it's pretty boring too. You know, it's like, I, it's not like I want to, you know, for me, the challenge of that material is, is given that it's really known material, how do we find other things on it? Like, how does it feel? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of it is digging deeper into harmony and digging deeper into rhythm and trying to understand, you know, so I continually go back to, you know, whatever, Branford Marsalis playing on these tunes or whoever, you know, like different contemporary players and different older players. You know, you put on a, uh, I have a student that was transcribing a Kenny Durham solo. Oh my God, like his time feel and like the notes and everything. It's just, it's just killing, you know? And so, um, I do have certain players, Tom Harrell being one of them, who, when I hear them, it sort of reestablishes my faith in like straight ahead jazz as a powerfully uh, communicative art form. Because, you know, I think he is, 
whatever that means. He is like a kind of mainstream jazz trumpeter, but he he manages to extract so much meaning out of playing a line over chord changes and so much freshness and kind of in the moment feeling. And that's what encourages me as a player to keep on trying to do those things. Yeah, absolutely. Man. I agree with you. That's a great, that's a great um, tip or a great something suggestion for, for players, you know? You yeah. Know, I had a conversation with Frank Kimbrough about this several years ago. Mm. I came up to New York and I spent a couple of days with him, taking some lessons with him. Oh, that's great. Been about seven, yeah. six, seven years ago, you know, and uh, it was just great. And then we had a conversation. He said, you know, he said, I used to think that uh, Fats Waller was like a clown, you know, but he's, I, he said, all of a sudden I heard him, you know, and I was like, wow, this guy is amazing, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, that's, we don't take some of that stuff seriously sometimes, you know? But, uh, yeah, right. you go back and listen to it. There's it's there's so much depth there, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I had a, an experience that I always think of for this. I was in New York and I was I was at the Vanguard and I was listening to a band and it was a band. I won't say whose band it is. Doesn't really matter. But Mulgrew Miller was playing piano and I think Roy Hargrove was in it. I forget exactly who the band was, but it was like a great, you know, like really terrific all great side men you know the I, I don't remember the bass player and the drummer but they were you know monsters they were really great players on the scene and i was listening to it i was in the back of the room and for the first set you know and it was like stuff i kind of you know it was a modal tune there's this that the other i was just i was kind of bored i wasn't really that into it and i was like yeah it's, it's really good but it's not holding my interest and then the leader came over to me on the break and he said hey do you want to sit in and i was like Oh, wow. Sure. Okay. And so I moved up closer to the band for the second set and I heard the whole second set. He actually never had me sit in. So that's like the sad part, (laughs) I guess the sad part of the story. (laughs) But it was a great, it was nonetheless a great lesson because I sat the, the, you know, I sat in the Vanguard, you can sit right up next to where the drummers play, you know, and you're really, you're almost right on top of the band. So I was like in the first row for the second set. And I don't think they played a hundred percent different. I think it was more or less the same kind of music and the same kind of level, but I was hanging on every note. I was watching Mulgrew like the whole time. I was like thinking, ah, man, that comp was so perfect. I couldn't comp like that. You know? So it's like, instead of looking at it as like from the back of the room, like a critic, I was sitting there right on top of the bandstand like I had to go play the next moment. And it was really enlightening to me because all of a sudden this thing that I was kind of, eh, you know, meh, not so excited about, I was really riveted. And I was like, holy shit, that guy is playing the heck out of every, you know, what? I mean, I love Mulgrew. That, he was a huge influence and a real favorite piano player of mine. But, uh, you know, still, I, I, you know, you have to, you have to show up. Like you just emotionally and you have to be present, you know, and you have to not just be casual about this thing that we're doing that, you know, when you hear somebody do something, that's what you're saying. So like when, when you hear like when Frank, you know, talks about hearing Fats Waller and really hearing it. Yeah, that's how, that's how I feel. You know, you listen to things that you might've thought, ah, it's, it's good. It's not, it's not earth shaking. And it's like, yeah, but what does it take to be good? I mean, what does it what does it take to play with that kind of smoothness or that kind of a time feel or that kind of a sense of you know being locked in and really connected to the other members in a way that makes you said, them, you said the word I like I like that word presence you know yeah I remember reading Keith, an interview with Keith Jarrett he said that's why he liked having Gary Peacock and uh, Jack Deason mm-hmm. they always show up you know. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. That well, you know, if you just yeah. up there, we call it phone. If you just up there phoning it in, right? You do that, and like you said, you're standing in the back of the room. You you sort of had an attitude about it. You weren't like actually involved in the music. You, right. For some reason you weren't present, but when you right. made that decision, whatever that decision was, and you became present to the music. Yeah, I've had that experience many times. Yeah. Like things that you think get in the way of your appreciation of the music a lot. Or my with me, I I was I always liked. Um, Wayne Shorter's quartet, like conceptually, and I love Brian, you know, because I and I played with him a lot, and I know know him for years, and uh, so that, but that band, I used to think the first time I heard him, I thought, oh, this should be more like Danilo should play more like Herbie. He plays kind of a lot. It seems like Danilo is sort of the center more than I think would be right or something. It just seems like I, I just always had that idea that Danilo is playing kind of a lot, and then I was listening to them. I remember at this one. Uh, concert and I heard myself say that I heard like the voice in my head say oh yeah there Danilo goes again he's playing a lot and I was like and the other part of my head <laughs> the voice of the next voice in my head not that I usually have these conversations in my head but I I just said to myself why don't you just shut up and listen and I remember like just being absolutely blown away. Like there's a reason why, you know, sometimes people have an attitude about somebody in the band. They have like a look, I've always thought Danilo is a great musician and I like really he's a nice guy, a good, really phenomenal player, an incredible comper. Um, but you know, I was thought, uh, just taste wise, it seems like he plays a lot. You know, that's it. That was like, you know, it's not a terrible thing to think about somebody, but it was in my head. So it interfered with my just appreciating that, you know, Wayne hired him and continued to hire him and likes what he's doing. You know, it's like, you don't have to say, I mean, there was a period where Wayne was playing less and Danilo was playing a lot. And that's just how that band functioned. Oh, yeah. But that's Wayne's call, you know, and I, and I couldn't have more respect for anybody than Wayne Shorter. So it's like, you know, so why do you think you have to be an editor and like make comments in the back? You know, it's like, I think, a little bit it's about staying humble you know and just saying you know it's it's here's this thing let me just appreciate what it is as it unfolds and try and and dig it you know instead of like trying to correct it you know so i think anyway for me i remember when i had that revelation and the rest of the night was like totally different music again a lot of it's what you bring absolutely yeah yeah. Actually, you mentioned Dave Pietro a second ago. Uh, I used to do cl some clinics with him where we would travel and play duo, and then we would do um, we would sometimes do a clinic. And I remember something he said at a clinic, which I always thought was an interesting idea. He said, "Put on a piece of music that you don't know, like a recording or something, you know, so, uh, like I don't know, some Bartok piece you never heard before." And, and he was talking to students, and he said, "Try and listen to the whole piece." And don't decide whether you like it or not. <laughs> yes. Because usually we make that decision in the first 30 seconds of the piece. <laughs> you know, he's like, can you just put off deciding how you feel about it in terms of like or not like? Yeah. It's so anti, you know, Facebook, like, 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 <laughs> you know, like her you know, love, like, you know, hate, whatever. But we, we have a tendency to really... Yeah. hear everything through that lens and he said you know it's not necessary to hear music entirely from the standpoint of what you are in the music you know you're you can just take it in and try and hear it for what it is instead of for what you think it ought to be and th that's kind of what i'm talking about and i only i use myself as an example because it's very easy to have that experience we often i think i would say people 
often listen to music and have a tendency to confirm the story they want to tell. You know, if it's somebody you love, you're going to be like, oh man, every note is like just perfect. And if, it, if it's somebody you're less fond of, you're kind of like, ah, there they go again, doing that thing I don't really want, want them to do. And it's like, yeah, but that's not written in stone. That's you. <laughs> you're bringing that to the table. So and your the mind is, works kind of, you know, it wants yeah. to be between on, off, and yes, no, I like it, I don't like it. Your mind just does it all the time. And once you yeah. get, once you make one of those, whether it's your decision or whatever it is, however you get to that state, once you're there, it's hard to see it. And, and Yeah, you can't see it anymore for what it is. I mean, there's a great quote from um, John Cage where he says he tries not to like any music because then it's like, then there's going to be music he doesn't like. That's the opposite of it. And he doesn't think that's valid. So, you know, it's like, don't like anything too much and don't hate anything at all. You know, it's just like, and you know, obviously John Cage had a pretty wide. Um, the other thing he said that I really liked was, and I don't know what this one means exactly, but I like it anyway. He said, uh, which is more musical, uh, a truck driving past, uh, um, a factory or a truck driving past a music school where people are practicing. I don't know. I just kind of like the image of like, you know, it's, it's, it's all, it's sound. It's all sound, baby. I guess that's it. I guess that's his, that's his larger. Challenging uh, that sense of preferences that we have, like you get preferences. We all like this. I don't like that. So it's, it's a challenge to your thinking about what's good and what's bad. Like you said. Well, no, how many times have you heard some music that you heard before? that you didn't that didn't really kill you or that killed you and then you listen to it again and you don't have quite that same reaction but i think that experience that frank kimbrough was and you're lucky to have spent time with him he was a a tremendous piano player and such a horrible loss to the jazz community that he passed so early um anyway but uh uh you know that experience that that Frank was describing, I think, is a is a pretty common one. Like suddenly hearing something, and like with the you know, like the scales fell from my eyes, I could see it for what it really is. You know, I do think that happens all the time. And for me, especially in a teaching context, because I have to say, I probably listen to music more at schools and with other you know than I do sometimes just putting on music at home. I haven't been doing that quite as much lately. You know, I'll hear something again recently was this Kenny Durham solo. And it's just like, oh, my God, that was like so happening, you know, and it was like and I'm not I mean, I've always liked Kenny Durham, but it's not like he's the focus of somebody I've listened to. And every time I hear him now, I'm always blown away. And I think oh, I really need to study more Kenny Durham. Yeah, yeah. So I feel the same way about Lee Morgan. Actually, I heard Lee Morgan. I actually I saw that um, documentary about him. Yeah, that was nice paid a little bit of attention to him on some recordings that I heard. And I was just like, wow, this guy's like a genius, man. He was, always, he was always like my favorite. That was my, you know, if I had to name a trumpet player, it was always Lee Morgan's the guy. That was the one that I always, he could come, it's, like, it's, it's just, you go like, how did he think of that? You know, <laughs> like, how did he come up with that? So, anyway, yeah. it's great. I, you know, I think I, I don't always listen to music often either anymore. Like I used to all the time, you know, but, uh, but I think, Part of that makes it a fresh experience for you too. If you're not mm-hmm. constantly listening, and then you then you hear something, you like it makes it fresh, right? It's like mm-hmm. if you don't play for a few days, and then you sit down at the piano. It's like suddenly it's fresh, you know, in a way. I agree. That can that can certainly work that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, this has been just great. I'm, I'm, this has been just great talking about the time, and uh, this has just been a great conversation. I think this is a lot of valuable stuff has been said for 
not just for students, but for students and for listeners, for all of us. You know, for me, I learned some great stuff today. Me too. Well, great. I'm glad. I'm, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I like your, it's not, I really enjoy your perspective. And, uh, you know, hopefully this will make us both famous household names in the yeah, world of podcasts. Well, that's the whole, that's the whole intention. <laughs> I know. It's all about the fame. It's all about the, it's all about the Benjamins, as they say. Okay, I'm going back to this one. This was my original position. Yeah, there you go. Original now I'm back blur. again. The original blur. Yeah. yeah, we've covered a lot of uh, ground in my apartment. Yeah, we have talked a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, along with the, <laughs> along with the um, conversation. <laughs> no, we've covered about 10 feet in my apartment. Although in New York apartment, that is probably a larger percentage of the space than down in your house, yeah. wherever your place is. But anyway... Well, thanks for doing this, and let's, uh, you know, please let's stay in touch. Uh, yeah, before we stop, is there anything else you think of that you'd like to add? Um, I mean, we've said a lot of stuff here. You've had a lot of great insights, and is there anything else you'd like to say? You know, I'd where, see- can you? where can we find you? Where can oh. we find you? Oh, David yeah. Well, yeah, davidberkman.com. Um, you I know, see you do some, uh, work, work, uh, workshops on uh, Jazz Heaven. I do do workshops on Jazz Heaven. That's a nice th- – if people are interested in that, that's a nice site. I mean, they have – what they do is he kind of – he it's a library of – you you know, so you do it live, but then it all gets uh, – they recut it, and they I think they put subtitles on it and everything. He's, like, trying to make a library of uh, – of uh, jazz clinician stuff. There's a lot of cool people on that, like uh, Mark Copeland and Jerry Berganzi and, um, you know, many. I was Berganzi at Berkeley when I, was, when I went to Berkeley. In oh, wow. Yeah, well, you. I, I just wrote to him this morning. I've been out of touch with him. I just wrote to him to see if he might do an interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he's amazing. So there is a lot. If you're interested, jazzheaven.com. And then, you know, hopefully, uh, well, I hope to get to South Carolina someday again. Yeah, I used to, I mean, you know, Everything got so curtailed during the pandemic, you know, we're just sort of getting back to like, I'm just getting back to thinking about traveling around again. I was supposed to go to a couple places. I went to Europe for the first time and Japan for the first time last, uh, in a while, last, uh, I, I'm usually in Japan in the winters and summers and then here, here and there are other places. So, um, but uh, yeah, uh, no immediate plans to go to South Carolina. I haven't been, there. I used to go quite a bit, but I haven't been there no. You're always welcome, though. I have a Steinway. Oh, thank you. you. Come play yeah. my Steinway. I have a nice Excellent. Steinway. Yeah. 1918 Steinway. Oh, Steinway what? It's been rebuilt. It's a B? Rebuilt B? It's real nice, man. Yeah. I just um, I just got a Steinway for the first time in my life. I have an uh, I for the first time, too, a few years, a couple years ago. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Mine is an L. Uh, it's newer than yours, but it's been a process of trying to get it into shape for the last two years. So it's almost there. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 All right. Well, great to see you, Keith, and good luck with this with this series. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you doing it. Okay, take care. Thanks for checking out Notes on Jazz. If you want to communicate with me, I offer free consultations. Just check the podcast notes for a link. You can also find a link to my website for CDs, downloads, and videos. See you next time at Notes on Jazz.